I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the final CapEx podcast of 2021. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. It's been an extraordinary year. From the murderous riots on Capitol Hill in January, to the Taliban sweeping through Afghanistan and the murder of a British MP on our own streets, it hasn't always been the jolliest of times. Nevertheless, here at CapEx we like to look on the bright side. So we have assembled three of Westminster's brightest and sharpest policy brains to chew over the best and worst of 2021. From the International Centre for Law and Economics, we have Sam Bowman. We also have freelance journalist Marie Leconte and The Telegraph's sketch writer, Madeleine Grant, along with our own deputy editor, Alice Denby, and yours truly. So sit back, relax and enjoy the best and worst of 2021. So we have a few sort of categories to help kind of tie together what has been a pretty ridiculous year of news. I think just to start off with, though, I mean, we're recording this on Friday, the morning of Friday the 18th, and the Conservatives have just lost North Shropshire. I mean, Madeline, if someone had told you six weeks ago that the Tories were going to lose a seat where they had a 23,000 majority with a 60% leave vote, what, what would you have said to them? Well, I would have been incredibly surprised. It seems to be you couldn't have picked a more of a, a safe seat if you tried. You've got the combination of Brexit, voting, countryside and shires, etc. And um, the, the, the crazy thing about the situation is that it was entirely avoidable. It's an absolute unforced error, a, a total own goal. Um, it stemmed from the reaction to the way that the heavy handed way in which the, the government reacted to the allegations of sleaze. And, you know, if, if they'd done even a few things slightly differently, they could have avoided all of this. Owen Patterson would still be an MP. So it's kind of it's a testament to, I think, both the fact that, um, you know, that there is a great deal of dissatisfaction, but also simply the, the cat handed way in which number 10 tends to handle problems and crises. Yeah, I think, Marie, I think comms foul-ups have definitely been a, uh, a theme of, of 2021 so far. Just from, from your point of view as a kind of uh, somebody who covers Westminster, I mean, is it, uh, has it been a difficult year just to keep tabs on anything? It seems to me that there's been so much turbulence and such an unending kind of maelstrom of news this year. Looking back through the year, I've almost forgotten about half of the things that have happened in politics. I know absolutely and actually I'm still um, as of today being mocked by a friend I had lunch with I think was in uh, much earlier this year 
where I said, you know, I'm actually quite worried because obviously I'm a freelance journalist. I mostly write about Westminster. I think that, you know, with the pandemic, probably hopefully on the way out soon. And also, you know, what is a government with a massive, massive majority? I just really worry that there's not going to be anything to write about. And, you know, and I thought, you know, do I have to even change careers entirely? So he now texts me basically weekly saying, you do realise you personally did this. Like, you personally broke the government by saying nothing will happen in 2021. Uh, but, yeah, no, no, it has been incredible. And as Madeline was saying as well, I think so much of it could have been really easily avoidable. And what, so what I don't quite understand, I think that would be my, my, my sort of big mystery box at the centre of sort of 2021 politics is I don't quite get how decisions get made in number 10 at the moment. Because I remember I wrote a piece last year um, talking about exactly that, talking about the decision-making process in number 10 and kind of saying, you know, part of the problem is Dominic Cummings will not listen to anyone. So the chain of command is kind of, um, quite broken, which means that they keep making all these mistakes um, that, you know, that they should not be making. Problem is, Cummings is now long gone and, you know, and, and the same sort of stuff keeps happening again and again and again. So I don't, yeah, I think decision making uh, in Downing Street uh, is for me that the main thing, uh, it is kind of, yeah, the, the main mystery I would like solved, um, I guess, in 2022. It's a kind of golden thread, if you well, if golden is the right word. I, Sam, in a year like this, do you discern any kind of real themes that tie 2021 together from a political or a policy perspective? Has it all just been a bit all over the place? Um, it does feel like 2020 and 21 are sort of merged together a bit in a kind of COVID-y blancmange. Uh, well, in the UK, the only real, um, well, the only two themes I can detect from the government are um, an enthusiasm for raising taxes um, that's a that's been a really really major um, distinct distinguishing feature of um, especially the chancellor, um, and also a kind of obsession with really trivial green um, policies. And I do think in this by election, it's kind of funny to think you know what are the major things the government has done on a policy on the policy front. It's well COP twenty six, some weird junket that the government thought was going to be this huge Olympics type event, and turned out to be a totally embarrassing damp squib that was boring for the people who had to go, and even more boring for the people at home who had to watch it on the news as if it was a major news event. Um, banning of boilers at home um, in order to achieve net zero, which is a thing that was just sort of decided a few years ago at the, in the dying days of the Theresa May government that we were going to have to do. Um, and incidentally, I'm very concerned about climate change, but not a believer in net zero. I think net zero is a very silly um, target. Um, and you do kind of think, well, what the hell is the government expecting in constituencies like this? If their major themes are we're going to raise taxes and we're going to bring in demented uh, green policies that won't do anything on climate change incidentally that's the that's the real problem if they were effective then i'd have a lot of sympathy for them but they're both ineffective and inconvenient and i kind of think well you know you kind of get what you deserve and if you want to be obsessed with single-use plastics and you want to be obsessed with dolphins and things like that then great but don't expect to be able to win constituencies like this as easily as you you might hope yeah i would just point our listeners there's a very good piece this year by sam's old colleague sam Dimitriou about all of the environmental things that people think are important, almost none of which have the slightest impact on climate change at all. And I think single-use plastics is probably the, the kind of apogee of that, which gets an enormous amount of airtime, but actually... And doesn't, even, and doesn't even in the UK make any difference to the well-being of animal 
animal life in the water either. You know, like 90% or 95% of the plastic that ends up in the ocean comes from rubbish dumped in the ocean in very poor developing countries. If you want to tackle that, which I think would be a great thing to do, then make those countries richer and also do things to clean up the specific rivers and rubbish dumps and rubbish um, disposal that's leading to that going in. It's still impossible for people to explain because it doesn't happen how a straw that you use in a pub in London somehow makes its way into a dolphin's blowhole. Um, and yet the kind of central theme of it, because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't. Landfill in the UK is pretty secure. If if and when there is a problem, it's when we sell rubbish to other countries that don't dispose of it properly. But and yet there's this there's this completely illogical idea that stopping people from using plastic straws here is A, going to save the planet, or A, going to save animal life, which I don't think it will, and B, is going to somehow be good for the Conservatives in electoral terms, which I really, really don't think it will. Mm. Yeah, so I think we will definitely come on to the Conservatives' electoral fortunes uh, later on in the pod. We've already, we've had about five minutes, and we've already been on a bit of a kind of policy tour d'horizon, so I think we should crack on with our... Our first category or award, if you like, of the podcast is Hero of the Year. Now, Alice, you haven't um, chipped in yet. So do you want to kick us off? Who is your hero of 2021? So my hero of 2021 is David Perry, who is the uh, Liverpool taxi driver that prevented what could have been a horrific attack by locking this terrorist in his car. I just think to have the presence of mind to do something like that in a in an emergency is extraordinary. I can't imagine doing it myself. And I would just add on, just going back to North Shropshire, Madeline and Maria are absolutely right. It's complete own goal. You know, if they hadn't cocked up in this way, Owen Patterson would still be an MP. But I would just say, you know, as always with by-elections, let's not be hasty. This doesn't mean the Lib Dems are going to win a general election. No, I don't think go back to your constituencies and prepare for government is going to be happening anytime. I do absolutely love the kind of read-across people have. I've seen people this morning saying, oh, this is really bad for Keir Starmer. I was like, is it? Really? You know? Uh, Marie, any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, no, I was just going to see. I, I, I saw a really funny tweet just before this started saying, and actually, you know, if this swing keeps, the Tories will have three seats at the next general election. Excellent. Yeah, we'll be a one-party like one state governed by the Lib Dems. <laughs> I can't wait. I, for one, look forward to it. Well, I I often um, want someone to um, you know teach when when the conservatives lose their way as badly as they have done. You you long for someone to sock it to them a bit for them to have a wake up call. And, and and so I woke up this morning thinking, good, this is perhaps the the warning shot that the Tory party needs. But then the Lib Dems are always just so so bloody embarrassing when they win anything. They're so cringe. The energy, cringe <laughs> levels are off the charts. So they do that oh, thing. We should have had a cringe moment of the year, and that that Chesham hammer. Ah, yes, you've anticipated me with the, the blue brick. wall. My God. Well, Sam, you you presumably were reasonably happy with that, having campaigned for the Lib Dems before. But uh, I mean, who who would you pick as your hero of twenty twenty one? I think it's pro- there's probably quite a few candidates in there. My hero of 2021 is uh, Zara Rutherford. Uh, she's the 19-year-old who's attempting a solo flight around the world in a very small plane called a Shark, which is a single-engine ultralight. And um, she's currently over Indonesia, 
Um, she set off from Belgium on the 18th of August and um, flew up the UK, across Greenland, around the US, over Mexico, and over the over Alaska and Russia. And um, I just think it's kind of cool. She'll be the youngest woman ever to fly solo around the world if she makes it. Um, the previous record was held by a 30-year-old, so she's 11 years younger than that. And um, I just think it's kind of fun, and it's the sort of thing that I like seeing people do, and it seems aspirational, and it's a bit inspiring. Um, and I couldn't bring myself to pick a politician or somebody like that as a hero. Um, and unfortunately, Elon Musk was already taken by Time Magazine and the FT. So I thought, yeah, Zara Rutherford, she's pretty great. So um, I hope she makes I hope she makes it all the way around. I hadn't actually heard of that, but that does. I think that's a nice choice. Marie, who is your... Uh... Hero of 2021. I'm afraid to say I've also not picked a politician, actually, but uh, maybe someone who's a bit more politics adjacent. So I think my hero of the year, uh, which will be not a surprise, I think, to anyone who's ever been anywhere near my Twitter account this year, is Gareth Southgate. Um, You know, the the man who made me a French woman back the England team in football tournaments. Um, But I think, you know, more broadly as well, someone who I think made football just so much more fun and inclusive and positive. Um, And yeah, and I think, you know, we, we deserved to have a really good summer this year, I think, as a country. And I think he delivered on that. Um, so, yeah, arise, Sir Gareth. I, I think, um, I'm not sure if I would make him my own hero of 2021, but he certainly was responsible for the highlights of my year in that respect. So uh, a very decent selection. He also proved himself to be better at kind of culture war comms stuff than most politicians um, in his own way with that, that essay he wrote um and so on that did really well. Matt, do you uh, do you have a nominee? Yes, I was I was struggling. There were a few to choose from. Um, in the end, I went for um, Nathan Law, um, the pro democracy leader who uh, who fled Beijing's crackdown in Hong Kong last year, and he has since made his home in London. Um, and he's essentially the kind of the figurehead of the umbrella movement, and he's standing up for all his friends who've been incarcerated by the CCP. Um, and I picked him because I just think it's extraordinary what he achieved at such a young age. Um, I still think, I think he's still, he's not yet 30. Um, and he's someone that is admired throughout the world as, um, you know, a figurehead in the, the global struggle for democracy and for freedom. Um, and I also picked him, I think, because it's the source of great national pride that he picked London as his his place to um, to settle. And I think it should, his presence there should serve as a reminder that we need to do more in um, next year to not just to welcome Hong Kongers and to um, expedite the visa process as much as possible, but also to help those who have come to the UK already and are trying to adjust. Um, and there's a really great organisation called um, Hong Kong Link Up, which uh, pairs people with um, Hong Kongers who've come across to sort of help them settle in and get their, you know, their bank account set up and that kind of life admin. Um, so, yeah, that's why I picked Nathan Law. I think that's a great pick. Yeah, I've um, chatted to Nathan a bit um, this year as well, actually. It's quite interesting. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for Hong Kongers coming here. Our most read piece last year was Sam's uh, Sam's slightly, I think, tongue-in-cheek suggestion that we build an entire city for Hong Kongers. I think somewhere in the middle of East Anglia. Well, not not tongue-in-cheek, not remotely tongue-in-cheek. Sorry. And I would say the spirit of Zara Rutherford is the sort of thing we need to build new cities and to um, bring, bring in... Absolutely. That was our most read piece this year, by the way, was uh, Britain needs to channel the energy of Iron Maiden, which I think tells you a lot about the kind of thing 
to people like reading on CapEx. Right, so from heroes to villains. Alice, I really liked your choice of villain. I was given a sneak preview. Can you tell us who you went for? My villain of the year is Pen Farthing. This is the guy who led this extremely aggressive media campaign to get his dogs airlifted out of Afghanistan. And I just think, this guy, um, you know, the Foreign Office is trying to claim that no resources were diverted away from getting people. But I just don't think that stacks up. We know that the problem here wasn't planes. It was getting people into the airport. And it's just not credible that he wasn't helped when people could have been helped instead. And I think it just reflects terribly on this mawkish, animal-obsessed country. And, yeah, boo to Penfarthing and his animals of Farthingwood. I mean, we could have had a whole section of villains just based on Afghanistan. I mean, the Taliban. Joe Biden for pulling out when it was really obvious that it was going to be an absolute shitstorm if he did so. The, the list is endless. It's not as though the Taliban are renowned for their dog-murdering policies, is it? Yeah, there is, in fact, I believe, um, another dog sanctuary run by an American guy in Kabul that's been totally untouched and is just happily going along. So, Yeah, that and Geronimo as well. My God, honestly. Yeah. I think um, the reason that, that Penfarthing is such a good choice is that it taps into, as Alice says, that particularly kind of mawkish, saccharine side of, of, of our politics. And it, I see it in all sorts of areas. I mean, Geronimo is another good example, but I think there was a bit of this in the the kind of the Piers Morgan and the cult of Captain Tom and all this kind of thing, where you can't really have a sensible discussion about stuff because people pull on the emotional cords. And that actually holds us back from, I think, you know, essential discussion in lots of areas. And it's so typical that we're a country that cares more about people than dogs. It's just so typical somehow. Dogs than people, I think. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and it plays into what Sam was saying about this environmental stuff because it's kind of pictures of, of turtles caught in plastic which pulls on people's houses rather than practical policies that could actually help yeah 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 and often ignoring the you know the the, the greater truth about these policies the um the, it's sort of like it's both wrong and it's it's worse than wrong because it leads us in the wrong direction as well yeah there's a there's a thing in um some circles around charity called effective altruism and it's basically the idea that you should be really really um tough and you should apply kind of economics and things like that to charitable giving so we can do as much good with our charitable giving as we can and i feel like we need a similar approach like effective environmentalism where we don't just do whatever sort of seems emotionally like it might be a nice way of helping the planet but we actually think you know for example the other day i was reading that um palm oil has obviously a very bad reputation because palm oil uses a lot of um, rainforest, but it turns out palm oil also is much, much, much more efficient per you know acre of land that's used um, for the production of oil. And other forms of fats and other forms of oils um, also carve against things like rainforest and carve against valuable land. So there have been these huge campaigns against palm oil, purely thinking about, you know, the orangutans, um, but ignoring the fact that the next best alternative to palm oil is often potentially much worse. Um, and you do think, you see this again and again in the environmental movement, that if they actually tried to think about the consequences of what they're doing, and they actually tried to aim for a particular goal rather than just look at, you know, what feels good right now, then it might be, um, it might be more effective. Marie, do you have a villain of 21? Uh, again, many to choose from. <laughs> so amazingly, I was actually also going to go for Penfarthing. 
Um, so and, and and I feel like you know very well covered now. The only thing I'll say is that also I hate his name. His name is so stupid. His name is stupid enough that even the spoonerism is less funny. Like Fen Parthing is not that funny. And normally spoonerisms always make names funnier. Anyway, so no, so I actually had a plan B because I genuinely thought it is quite likely that someone else will pick um, Fen Farthing. Um, and it's I mean it, it's a slight. I'm cheating slightly, but it's basically every politician who called for borders to be closed and to sort of like screw over migrants and immigrants whenever was convenient and that's you know left and right every country i think every party at some point in 2021 thought why not close the borders you know who needs to travel anyway who needs a sunny holiday when actually tens of millions of us across the world um have either no family where we live or have lots of family um across borders so yeah that that, that would be my, my general villain of the year just people forgetting um about immigrants Presumably with family in Ireland would concur. No, with that, the opposite. I, really should. I, I, I was one of those people. I, I think we we absolutely should have shut the borders. Um, and if we had shut the borders at the beginning of the year, then we would have possibly avoided Delta. Um, I don't think we would have kept them shut um, this long. So I don't think we would have avoided Omicron. But um, I, was ma- I was massively, I think I've written for CapEx, arguing that um, during the pandemic, it would have been really 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 good to follow the taiwan new zealand australia approach and i know it sucks i you know i spent a very long time not having seen my family either because my family are back in ireland um but i think that the cost of having covid and the cost of just letting the disease basically run rampant domestically um for such a long time was enormous and imposed on lots of other people the same kind of burden that those border closures imposed on us so marie you wanted to come back on Oh, yeah, but I guess as, as a sort of slight counterpoint, and actually that's quite um, fresh in my mind because that's what France announced yesterday, like, I think there are ways to keep borders somewhat open for those who need them. So like the new the new rules for travelling between Britain and France mean that I can go home to see my family for Christmas because I've got a French passport and I think you can still go as well if you've got direct family who lives in France. But basically holidays are banned. And I think, you know, that's something that it is insane that that's the first policy of its kind I have seen in nearly two years of a pandemic of saying, actually, you know, if you are traveling for family reasons, you can, but no holiday. So my point is more, I think that there could have been a middle ground all along, but then there was no political appetite, I think, um, for that to be there. I think, I mean, we talked about this. I mean, it feels like we're a lot at the moment in December 2021 feels rather like December 2020. We were talking how kind of muddled the response was. And I think the same is true with the plan B. It seems like a kind of uh, a bit of a to me it seems like a bit of a halfway house anyway we, we could sit here and talk i'm sure we'll carry on talking about that uh madeline do you have a, a villain that isn't pen farthing well, I, yeah i was i was i was tempted by pen farthing but um i'm actually really proud that two people so far have picked pen, pen farthing we've got such a good taste of villains. <laughs> um in the end though I, th- I think that i'm gonna have to go for boris johnson because what really I find really infuriating when we get to, we, we already talked about the, the unforced errors and, and all of that is just that sense that having had now two years um, of being in, the, in number 10, having come in with such an incredible historic opportunity to reform the institutions that needed to be reformed, to make conservatism palatable to future generations by pl- reforming the planning system properly and all of this, the kind of thing that you need 80 seat majorities in order to do. And all of that goodwill has just been squandered for this kind of, I guess, populist, but but in a kind of sort of let's follow the opinion polls type politics, um, which never leads and has no kind of sense of direction to it. Um, and I think that, you know, when we look back on this, it will be seen as this um, extraordinary missed opportunity to um, to really do something incredible. Um, so I feel like the annoyance with Boris Johnson is is 
is, is, is greater than it is with many other politicians because it's so rare that people have these kind of opportunities to redefine what conservatism is, etc. And it's just kind of gone up in smoke, really. Mm. And uh, Sam, we haven't come to you. You're your villain of 2021. I, I also picked Penn Farthing. And oh, really? <laughs> And I also made a note, um, like Marie, to make fun of his name, which really is the most annoying thing about him. I mean, he may have killed he may have killed dozens of people unnecessarily, but he's also got the most annoying name, and so who can say which is worse? Um, yeah. I also, I mean, if I can't pick him, I guess I'll pick the leader of the Taliban, who's also a villain. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. It's difficult to weigh up which one I hate more. I think that... It, I always think of these things, it should be... They're just sort of... They're villainy is in their dna if you like as a group so you just assume yeah. the taliban are villains for a start well i thought you i thought you were talking about pen, pen firing i think villainy is in his dna yeah i think he's a deep a deeply sinister character and um i, I think the alpaca woman should be right up there as well i mean for god's sake it's... i i i had a little bit of sympathy for her i I think she had a very close relationship with the alpaca, and i and although i think that the justice won out i i have a bit of sympathy for her Pen Farthing, I think, is just a deeply evil man. Yeah, he did go a bit mad at that spad as well. I think he said he would, like, I will end you or something in an email to someone, which I thought was deeply sinister. I, if I had to choose, I think I would... Yeah, I'm just going to go for... Uh, boringly, I would probably go for Donald Trump because of the massively horrible insurrection that... Well, if you want to call it that, riot, whatever you want to call it, which was the very beginning of this year. And I keep mentioning that to people and they keep going, was that this year? As if it's like, it's yeah. it's always been sort of forgotten. It's like they, they shot people inside the Capitol building and like, what, six people died? I mean, it was just the most in, insane start to what was in it, the most extraordinary year. So, yeah, I would I'd probably go either with Donald Trump or Joe Biden for deciding that it would be a good idea to withdraw from Afghanistan on 9-11 just because. Yeah. Which is the daftest, like geopolitical decision ever whatever you think of the sort of general merits of that right um say one thing okay. do, yes. you know who, do you know who wouldn't be villain of the year oh. rami malik in no time to die bloody awful villain terrible terrible <laughs> i was wondering how you shoehorn that in like, <laughs> uh can i just ask alice have you seen it yeah i've seen it marie um, yes, amazingly, I was literally having that chat with a friend like five days ago. I was like, I watched the movie so long ago now. I still, it is still not clear to me what he was going to do. Like, it's still not clear to me what his villain plan was and why he had to die. So yeah, Madeline, you're not alone. Like even a week ago, I was still like, but hang on, hang on. <laughs> I, I had to, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to, I, I can't not spoil it. If, if you haven't seen the film by now, I had to write, a, well, I didn't have to write it. I chose to write a review of it where I couldn't reveal what happens at the very end of the film. So I ended up going through all the other things I didn't, which is really what really, really, really annoyed me about the film. It felt like they were doing violence to the franchise. Um, but it was extremely cathartic. I just found it all faintly ridiculous. And yeah, I, Sam, any thoughts on that? For me, it was the big cultural letdown of the year. Uh, yeah, I thought it was a really bad film. Um, I thought Dune managed to be really good, and um, I'm a big fan of the book Dune, and so I was I was apprehensive about um, whether it would turn out well or not. Uh, but kind of movie-wise, nothing else really stands out for me this year. I'm told the new Spider-Man is good, but uh, if you like that kind of thing. All Spider-Man films 
get my hopes up because it's the only superhero that I have any kind of interest in at all. And I always think, oh yeah, this one I'm really going to enjoy. And I find, and I'm sure I'm not the only person to say this, but all Marvel films have this kind of cadence where somebody says something very serious and portentous and then somebody else says something really frivolous it's like <laughs> and i just find that kind of mode of humor really really unpleasant so um i'm i'm worried that spider-man will have the same kind of approach i suppose that sort of general point on that is that it's been an absolutely terrible time for the arts and so i think it's kind of bizarre that michael gove thinks that like medici florence is his model for leveling up when the arts have been completely thrown under the bus completely rejecting and we've saved pubs but museums galleries theatres can go to hell and the idea that we're going to make every single northern town into a kind of world historically significant place like medici florence is frankly bizarre well on in in his defense one what he i don't really know um what he was saying because the quote was sort of out of context but there is a point in that a lot of the flourishing that you had in medieval Florence and in um, 17th century Amsterdam in the Netherlands comes from just putting people close together, physically in close proximity to each other. And a lot of the way, and maybe we can talk about this later, a lot of the way um, English cities are built is to be very, very spread out and very, very sprawling and low density, even in um, quite central areas. So um, it may not be, and, I, and again, I don't really know what he was saying, but it may not be that you create... Um, success by just saying oh we're going to be like medieval Florence but it may be the other way around that if you recreate the form of medieval Florence the the really lovely dense um, beautiful sort of old town in Florence um, then you may get more of that sort of cultural flourishing because people are cl close together and you get these sort of weird random spontaneous uh, combinations of ideas where people from totally different fields are um, next to each other you know in bars and pubs and things like things like that. Another extremely important thing about Medici Florence was, of course, we had enormous amounts of private patronage. We had these rich bankers paying for arts and culture. So um, it's a good argument for small status. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, you mentioned Michael Gove. Yeah. We've had a lot, pretty much entirely negative comments about politicians so far. But our next category is Politician of the Year. So, Madeline, would you like to kick us off? Your villain was a politician with Boris Johnson. So... Who's your politician of the year? Well, I, I had a few a few thoughts there. I was um, I I ended up I was thinking of going to going for someone like Tom Tugendhat or possibly Steve Baker, but I did wonder about weirdly Theresa May. Um, I've been she's had this extraordinary transformation um, since she's gone to the backbenches, where she's gone from being this kind of chaotic calamity Jane um, figure the Maybot, et cetera, to um, being this really quite eloquent thorn in the government's side. And she tends to intervene on, I guess, important issues, you know, national issues of national importance. She doesn't weigh in constantly. So she hasn't gone full Ted Heath, you know, bitching and um, sulking from the backbenches. But when she does intervene, she tends to do it very well, very eloquently and persuasively. And it's also a reminder that they're just aren't all that many people in parliament who are capable of giving a good speech without needing to use their notes or anything like that. Um, so on, you know, on everything from Afghanistan to um, government overreach and some of the lockdown policies, she's been there um, opposing um, quietly, but very effectively. And I actually think that she's a kind of a good model of how to be an XPM in parliament. Um, it's certainly a lot better than the, the Ted Heath model where you basically just go to the backbenches and throw a tantrum for 26 years. Or the David Cameron model where you get caught up in lobbying scandal. Um, or, or that one. Yeah. Or, or spend 25 grand on a shed. 
Um, uh, Marie, you spend an awful lot of time chatting to politicians, good and bad. Um, what? Who is your choice? And bear in mind, it doesn't have to be positive, but it can just be significant. So. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a struggle. So I think um, I'm going to give that joint crown to Rachel Reeves and Angela Rayner. So I think Angela Rayner, because for you know quite obvious reasons for... You know, the fact that she that a reshuffle started in which she was about to get demoted and somehow she ended up with, you know, more job titles than anyone has ever had in politics. Um, and I think any attempts, I think quite a lot of people in Labour have tried to come at her over the past year and basically all have failed. So I think, you know, there's something of an unstoppable rise, I feel like, feeling to Angela Rayner still which I'm not sure, you know, anyone really predicted would happen this year. So probably, you know, and, and the fact, you know, even looking at the kind of um, Tory scum speech and the fact that I think she recovered from that quite well, her apology was very good and it seems to have been accepted. Um, so definitely, yeah, her kind of one to watch. And then, yeah, Rachel Reeves, because, and, and that's maybe, you know, my own biases, but when earlier this year people were saying, oh, well, you know, Rachel Reeves will come back, you know, from the days of the end of the shadow cabinet and she will, you know, be a leading figure in Labour. And I thought, really like really Rachel Reeves like she I, I never found her that impressive during the Miniban years and I didn't really see her coming back and you know and fair play to her she's now back in a very senior role and she is doing I think very very well um which again I, I did not really see that coming and I think that we will see a lot more of her next year so yeah I'd say yeah Reeves and Rayner the kind of new woman of labour would be my politicians of the year yeah and I think that sort of chimes with labour generally especially in the last few months becoming a bit less of what you might call the banter party and sort of taking themselves a little bit more seriously, which I think is probably actually, whatever your politics, it's good to have, it's better to have an opposition that has a bit about them than a kind of constant backbiting and so on. Alice, your choice, politician of the year. Yeah, mine is uh, Kim Ledbetter. Ledbetter. She won this horrible by-election in Batley and Spen where George Galloway had sort of really inflamed racial tensions. And this was, of course, Joe Cox's former seat and Kim was Joe Cox's sister. And I just think that she rose above it. She won that election with dignity. I think it was an extraordinary thing to kind of step into her sister's shoes like that. She wasn't a natural politician. And yeah, I just think, you know, she's one of the good ones. Yeah, I agree. I mean, some of the stuff you saw during that by-election, people sort of screaming at her in the street, a lot of homophobic abuse and stuff like that. I think she's got to real like guts to do that, especially when George Galloway's in town. He's like a one-man kind of toxic express, steams through places he's never been to in his life and uh, stirs shit up and then leaves. Um, right. Finally, Sam, you're politician of the year. It doesn't have to be a UK politician, by the way. I should stress that. Well, my, mine is um, Rishi Sunak, um, but it's a sort of negative. It's it's like time picking um, a bad person as their person of the year. I want, I'm not going to name the person because I don't want to imply that I'm comparing them. Um, I think Rishi Sunak, other than COVID, has been the worst thing to happen to the UK um, in the last few years. And um, in 10 years' time, it's probably the consequences of Rishi Sunak that we're suffering more than the consequences of COVID. Um, so I just want to lay out his, his 2021 um, so he has announced that he's going to raise corporation tax. And this is the first time since 1974 that corporation tax is being raised. We're going from 19% to 25%. Um, he did this on the expectation that the Biden administration was going to raise corporation tax as well, which they're not. 
um, he pre-announced this several years in advance, which means you get the worst of both worlds because businesses cut back investment now because they expect the future corporation tax rise to hit their profits. But you also don't get the tax revenues for a few years. So it's, it's doubly bad. Um, he was involved with, although I know this came from Boris, but he went along with the 2.5% national insurance rise, which is just an income tax rise. He cut national, he cut international aid spending, which is very bad. Um, international aid from the UK is really good and um, is one of the best value for money things we do. Um, he wants to cut, of all taxes, VAT, which is the most efficient tax pretty much that we've got on the books. Um, just recently, he was reported as opposing more funding for vaccines um, because it would cost a few billion. I, again, I mean, I, I think that kind of sums up his penny-wise, pound-foolish attitude. Um, it looks like he's going to stop increasing funding for R&D. He's brought back the whole um, drama of the Treasury briefing against the PM. Um, he's completely captured by Treasury civil servants. I think he's basically a kind of school SWAT type, um, which makes him unusually easy to, for clever Treasury bureaucrats to trick him and take advantage of him. And I think just fundamentally, he has no ambition for the country, no desire to think strategically. I have no idea what kind of country he wants the UK to be. I have no idea what he thinks will create economic growth or what he thinks his role is in creating economic growth. I think he's just rubbish. And even the one the one good thing he did this year, which was the super deduction, um, the, the allowing businesses to deduct all of their investment from their tax bill, um, was great, but it's temporary. And making that kind of thing temporary when you're making things like the corporation tax rise permanent is just half-assed. And um, I really, I, th I, I suspect he's going to be the next prime minister. Um, and I'm deeply, deeply depressed about that fact. Well, I, um, I'm not like a sort of massive Sunak fanboy, but um, if I were to make the case to the defence, I think... One, he doesn't. He's not exactly alone in being a politician. He doesn't seem to have much of an idea about growth. I I see very little on either side of the aisle where someone seems to have an overarching vision for the kind of country they actually want us to be. I mean, we're, I don't want to go into sort of. We we're obviously part of a think tank that was founded by Margaret Thatcher, and whatever you think of her, or even Tony Blair after her, they you knew what they stood for and what they wanted to do for the country. I don't think you could say the same necessarily now about where we're going. We have kind of government by slogan i think a lot of the a lot just, of the times but you just have to think about the um the situation we were in at the beginning of 2021 or in march 2021 it looked then as if the worst of covid was behind us um it it i think probably the worst probably was but there's still a bit more to go um he had this opportunity where even people like me diehard free marketeers who are very 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 anti-government borrowing most of the time even people like me were saying, now is the time. If we are ever going to borrow money, if we are ever going to spend a lot of money, cut taxes, things like that, now is the time to do it. Borrowing is unbelievably cheap by historical standards. You can do this and you will only get rewards from it. And what does he decide to do? Oh, right, he's going to raise corporation tax and he's going to raise national insurance. I find it absolutely flabbergasting that he wasted probably the biggest opportunity he will ever have in his life to be all things to all people politically and also to do some good economically in the process. And it just makes me think that he, I mean, he's had a pretty easy life politically. Um, I think it's very, very likely that he will end up succeeding Boris Johnson. Um, and I think we're going to end up with another Theresa May or another Gordon Brown in that job, somebody who's just totally unsuited for the job, and it's basically just a disaster um, for the probably few short years that he's in the role. I think if there's one thing that kind of 
almost encapsulates the government's approach to policy making. It's this announcement at the budget that there was going to be 300 million for early years childcare for sort of short start centres. It's a pitiful amount of money. And what we really need is supply side reforms that tackles the reasons why childcare is so expensive. Sure start centres are not going to help women get back into work. They're not going to improve life chances for children. And it's just this classic approach to just throw some money at something without doing the actual hard work. And that's also a personal bugbear of mine about how expensive childcare is. I think that that's an overall thing you could say, that they haven't taken on any of the big kind of intractable things that need reforming. And you can always say, oh, well, it's COVID, but not all of it is. I mean, they've had time to do other stuff. I mean, we haven't seen any... I mean, housing is the big one. We'll come on to our, our policies of the year in a moment. But um, for me, housing is, the, is obviously the big one. I live in an area where house prices have quadrupled in the last 15 years. I mean, it's, it's completely unsustainable. Sorry, Maddie, you were going to come in? I was just going to say that I've noticed a trend that I see, because obviously you're sketching the commons two days a week. You, see a, you, you, you hear some recurring trends that you might not see if you've just tuned in every once in a while. I've noticed the Tories now increasingly, when they are talking about their record, what they're proud of, they point to money they've either already spent or money that has been committed. They say, we're spending this amount on this. This is what the Tories do. Um, there is that, uh, that, the, the idea that the way that you, um, that enlarging the size of a pie, especially coming out of the pandemic when the, the number of policy levers at your disposal is less. So really, if you are to improve opportunities um, for the lower paid and you have ruled out um, cutting taxes, which they seem to have done, that if you're going to do that, you bloody hell, you need to have an economy that is growing. There was just a complete absence of any sort of pro-growth anything. Um, the thing they brag about now is the infrastructure project, is the promise of more spending, which seems fundamentally a very unconservative way to go about politics. Yeah, and the thing, I, the thing I'm worried about, which I wrote the day after the budget, is that all these the sort of spending and tax plans they vague, they've sketched out in what October end of October were predicated on really optimistic growth numbers which are already out of date. I mean, there's no way we're going to hit those numbers now, especially if the economy is going to go into this kind of maybe not spiral, but I'm sure activity is definitely going to be suppressed if we've got to deal with a um, very very large wave of of coronavirus. So, and that's the kind of thing that that I'd be worried about. If I were, I don't, I don't, um, I don't take quite as negative a view of the Chancellor as Sam does. I think he's quite a canny political operator, certainly. I, I do share the overall disquiet with the amount of tax raising and stuff. But my fear for him is that the classic tax now cut later might not work if he's in such a bad fiscal situation because they haven't hit any of these growth numbers. They don't have the revenue they need. Which brings us neatly on to... Uh, I think penultimate category, which is your, your policy of the year. Marie, would you like to kick us off on this one? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, I struggled a bit with that one, to be honest, because as we've just discussed, I think this has not been an especially big policy heavy government in the past year or, you know, indeed since um, it's come into power. So I think I'm going to cheat slightly and go for the self-employed uh, support scheme. Um, partly because, you know, selfishly, I am self-employed and actually it really helped me uh, during the um, the winter lockdown. But also because I think, and, you know, I'm not sure how popular that's going to be with the rest of this panel, but it, it, it felt quite nearly quite unconservative, quite unBritish even, the fact that there was just that lump sum of money everyone was given. Um, you know, and in my case, it's massively helped. So I didn't, um, it turns out, you know, I, I'd lost a lot of my income. I'd not lost 80% of my income. So that's money I've been able to put aside, you know, partly. So that's how I managed to write um 
the book um, I have written, that's definitely not coming out next year because I'm definitely not allowed to talk about it yet. Um, you know, and also I'm moving to Venice for two months uh, next year, and that's partly basically funded by the Treasury. Um, and 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 no, but but I do sincerely think that you know, as as someone who rather pompously, you know, would describe myself as at least sort of like creative adjacent, um, I, I suspect that actually, you know, a lot of stuff like this will have come out of the self self employed uh, grant. I know quite a lot of people who've got it and who've basically been able to work on things they otherwise could not because you need money to work on quite a lot of creative projects because the creative industries are basically built at the moment especially uh, for people who just have disposable income uh, to burn so yes yeah, so I, th I think that was actually a very good progressive liberal fun pro arts policy in a weird way <laughs> all right alice do you have a policy of it's the year quite, it's quite difficult to think of a policy that I liked from this year, I suppose the only good thing that I think the government has done was not looking down when we were having the original surge in Delta. It stuck to its nerve and cases went down and for once our freedoms were protected, but there's very little else to like, I think. Madeline? Yes, I very much agree with, with Alice there that it's a, we're not exactly lousy with fantastic ideas. I mean, I was going to say that the street votes concept that Michael Gove seems to have given his backing to is a fantastic idea, um, giving local people the power to set their own local development rules in suburban areas. Um, but again, I'm not really sure if that's, you can say that's a policy since he's sort of intimated that he, he will support it, but I'm not quite sure given that the amount of flip-flopping there has been on planning liberalization already, if you could consider that a policy. So um, I guess the other thing is, is the, the rollout of the vaccines, um, which I guess is more of a 2020 thing if you're looking at the task force, but there's been a, you know, a, a very strong rollout all of this year. And I suppose that is, again, one of those things that seems to be a concrete win um, when we haven't had too many of those. And another good reason I think to mention it is, is a reminder of exactly why it was so successful. Um, by kind of getting rid of some of the usual sort of bureaucratic checks and balances, giving people the authority, people who, who know what they're doing to, to, to bulk buy and plan ahead and be strategic in that way. But the problem is that the approach is not being tried in other very important areas, such as antiviral drugs. And so I think that this is another area where there's huge promise, um, what we're seeing from the, the clinical trials. But the government doesn't seem to be throwing the kitchen sink at it in quite the same way as they did with, with vaccines. So I guess that's a reminder of um, the way to go in these situations. Yeah, that's certainly something I was um, thinking about as well when I was sort of preparing for this, is that it, it's a weird atmosphere at the moment because it feels like there's this literally war effort-like campaign. I mean, the, the army are actually involved in um, helping people get vaccinated. But at the same time, we seem to be going rather slowly on things like you you mentioned the drugs there, like fluvoxamine is one. I mean, this is a drug that already exists as well. It's not like a new thing, but the, it's usually used to treat depression. So I can understand there are some, I, I do understand there are things you have to go through. You don't just like fling drugs onto the market willy nilly. Um, but it does feel given the costs are so high uh, that, as you say, we're not throwing the kitchen sink at it. Right, Sam, I saw you, I think you were kind of nodding along when... Um, when Madeline said street votes, this is certainly something you're a big fan of yourself. I should also add a shout out for an essay that Sam and some colleagues did called The Housing Theory of Everything, which is really nicely lays out how basically pretty much all our problems are down to housing and how crap our planning system is. Is your policy of the year in that area or have you picked something else? 
Well, yeah, so I, I have two. Um, I was going to say street votes, and I'm... Um... I'm excited by the fact that Madeline also thinks the street votes are, are might be there. Um, we're we're definitely not uh, over the finish line with street votes yet. The the noises coming from Michael Gove are really positive. He said he loves the idea. Told John Penrose, who wrote a paper proposing a street votes, and 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 in fact brought a bill forward in Parliament uh, to kind of present the idea. Um, and he said that he wants to shamelessly steal from that. So that's all really um, encouraging. But anybody who has followed the kind of ins and outs of the planning white paper and the planning bill will know that um, street votes were announced to be in the draft planning bill the day before the reshuffle that ended up with the last housing secretary losing his job. So um, we can't count our chickens before they're hatched. Um, I'm very optimistic and I think it would make a really noticeable difference to the way our cities look and to access to housing and that would be great. Um, my other policy of the year is one that I think is a bad policy, but is really, really popular in the US, increasingly in the UK and in the EU. And this is the idea of non-discrimination for digital platforms. Um, and in, in all of the major jurisdictions, um, and in fact, just today, the European Union Parliament has voted in favour of um, an act that would severely curtail uh, what's called discrimination or self-preferencing by digital platforms. And really what that means is platforms putting multiple services onto a single thing. So when you search for a restaurant on Google, Google sometimes puts up a maps result page on the on the links page. And I find that very useful. And I think that is a very good thing about the modern internet. Um, another example is Amazon often sells things called Amazon Basics products, um, among other products being listed. Um, and that's another example of self-preferencing. Now, I think those things are great, and I think that um, a lot of the role of digital platforms is to bring order to the chaos that is the internet. And I, I love the chaos, but it's it's pretty um, overwhelming as well. Um, and what we're seeing in all of these countries is a move to try to make platforms more like um, utilities, sort of neutral telephone company almost um, uh, conduits for others to transact and do business on. And I think that comes at really, really great costs. Um, It's interesting to see what happens in Europe because they are uh, kind of blazing a trail with this. And I suspect it's going to um, backfire. And I suspect a lot of people in Europe quite soon, as with the GDPR, will start to wonder, are the benefits um, substantial at all compared to the very obvious costs? Um, and hopefully the UK and the US can learn from that. But um, this is an astonishingly popular idea. Um, it's the basis for the lawsuits against Google and the Google Shopping case, Amazon for uh, in Italy recently for requiring sellers to use Amazon's logistics services. And um, it's really at the heart of a lot of the debates that go on about um, digital markets and um, big tech today. And um, certainly the pendulum at the moment is very, very much on the side of the people who want to make these platforms more like kind of dumb pipes than um, the, the, the tools that they are right now. Yeah, I mean, the gap between, I think, politicians' knowledge and understanding of how tech platforms and the internet work and those of actual experts in the field seems to me to be absolutely enormous. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that. There was one in the US where a senator asked Mark Zuckerberg how Facebook was free, and he was like... Um, we sell adverts. And it was like, that uh, just summed so it up so well. It felt like, you, know, you get some daft questions. In well, you, also, you also had, yes, Senator Blumenthal asking if um, 
the head of Instagram would end Finster. Um, and fi- Finster is like a slang for when you make a fake Instagram because, you know, you don't want your parents seeing what you're using. And um, he seemed to think it was a kind of malicious terrorist group or something. Yeah, but, but, he, but he asked the guy to commit to ending Finster like it was this sort of malicious um, behavior. And I really, it really does sort of highlight just how um, inept a lot of the people making the rules are. Um, I, and I do think, you know, you look at even the fact the, the UK Competition Authority has recently blocked Facebook from buying Giphy, which is, you know, the service that provides those GIFs when you use a keyboard or on Twitter. And, um, you, you know, you can think it's a good decision or a bad decision. But a lot of the judgment, that a lot of the decision, it really reads like... It, it's surreal you know one of the one of the arguments they made about why gifs are potentially such a valuable advertising tool is that people see gifs multiple times because they loop when you look at them so if you have an ad that's a gif then you would see the ad multiple times and you think like are you for real you know if you think if you think that then like wait until you hear about static images which the viewer sees an infinite number of times anytime they look at them like it just seems so bizarre that that the people and the people who are making these decisions are very smart and very knowledgeable in their own fields but um i kind of think once it comes to digital markets that they may not understand uh they often seem to get the wrong end of the stick and sadly they're the ones making the rules i think that was actually one thing we haven't mentioned which is very maudlin and sad was david amos's murder and he was probably my if i had to pick a politician of the year i'd probably pick him in terms of impact emotional impact if nothing else but after he was murdered people started saying oh well we need to go after anonymous trolls online it's like he was murdered by an islamist fanatic it was nothing to do with online anonymity and you get mps standing up and saying they're furious at jack dorsey about something that happened yeah. in south end i'm like what's going on it's bizarre sorry uh, maddie you wanted to come in well, yeah, I just completely agree. It's the, the, the efforts that people will go to, to to have the wrong conversation about the issue. And, um, you know, within, I think within days of his murder, there was talk of David's law, you know, a new law that would prevent you from being, for being from, from online anonymity being allowed on, on social media platforms and this kind of thing. Um, and you just think, you know, how do we, how do we go, go from A to B? And I, I do empathise because politicians get a great deal of abuse and the abuse that they mostly see is, is what they get on social media when they go home from work at the end of the night, they go on their Twitter and it's just, you know, the, the replies to any politician's tweet are just venom and bile. And it would be quite hard not to take from that when one of, one of your colleagues is attacked to kind of link the two. But in, in this occasion, it really wasn't. And we have not had the conversation about um, radicalisation at all, really. It was just a few op-eds from people. I've not really seen it being discussed in Parliament, even by MPs. Yeah, and it's also interesting in terms of, I think, one of the abiding themes, I mean, this has been the same for many years, you know, because of the internet and social media, but the sheer kind of velocity of news this year seems to have been even faster. I mean, it seems strange to me now that only a couple of months ago we were all talking about how we all need to be much kinder to each other and more civil and more polite to politicians. Well, <laughs> fast forward a couple of weeks and it's you're just straight back to square one almost immediately. It doesn't make any, any difference to anything. Uh, I think I should probably bring Alison on the the David's Law thing because she wrote a very good piece a few weeks ago about this kind of really bad tendency, especially recently, to kind of have really specific laws where there's already a law to cover that thing. I think this kind of ties into what we were talking earlier about animals and about when emotion is uh, deployed to try and drive policy. So what I was talking about was this law 
It was in response to this awful crime where a police officer got dragged behind a car. Harper's Law. And, and and so his widow has led this campaign to make it a mandatory life sentence for anyone who kills a police officer or an emergency responder. And the problem with this law, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to criticise it because you can see what a dreadful crime this was and, and, and how this widow feels like she was denied justice because the killers received, I think, 16 year sentences. But this law is a bad law. It's not going to prevent similar crimes happening in the future. Murder already carries a mandatory life sentence. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's a bad tendency across policymaking to be led by emotion or the news cycle or whatever it might be, rather than making practical decisions. Yeah, and it adds to an already kind of convoluted and over full statute book, which is, is difficult for people to understand and, and to understand the way that sentencing is carried out. Right, from that rather um, sort of grim theme, we're going to come to our final category, just to round things off. Now, I always like to end things on, on a more upbeat note because there's enough misery around in the world and I think it's nice to have a bit of happiness as well. So the final one is reasons to be cheerful. I'm going to kick this one off myself because I was reading, I was reading a blog by everyone's favourite billionaire 5G enthusiast, Bill Gates, and he, was, he pointed out that this year they developed... Um, I think it's a retroviral, antiviral drug against malaria, which potentially could save hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives every year, which I think is something to celebrate. So it hasn't all been, you know, complete doom and gloom on the on the disease front in, in 2021. Sam, what's your uh, if you have to pick a reason to be cheerful from 2021 or looking ahead to 2022? Even? Well, um, <clears throat> to, to highlight just how depressing everything is my reason for to be cheerful was also the um malaria vaccine for children uh muscarex so so maybe it's gonna be like pen farthing where we all have one villain and we all have one reason to be cheerful but it does it does highlight um you know one one thing that is notable about the um amazing vaccine success against covid um is that we were able to do it in an amazingly short space of time. And that does suggest that there may be other diseases that if we put equivalent amounts of, obviously we're never going to put the same amount of energy um, or effort into into any other disease, hopefully. Um, no disease will be as, as dangerous and as pressing for us. But if we put more effort and more resources and money into um, those kinds of drugs, then we may be able to cure a lot more illnesses than we realize or make a lot more illnesses um, tolerable. I guess my other reason to be cheerful or my other thing that I'm optimistic about is artificial womb technology. Um, I think that the uh, one of the really big um, bottlenecks in terms of people being able to live the sort of life that they want um, in terms of family and things like that is how difficult pregnancy can be and how costly pregnancy can be. Um, and artificial wombs now are very, very promising um, for animals, and we now have been able to grow uh, calves and goats in artificial wombs uh, that seem fully healthy when they're born. Um, and obviously, it will be a long road to being confident that we can do that for humans. But someday, if we can allow people to grow children in artificial wombs rather than grow children in themselves, um, a lot more people will be able to have kids, and a lot more people will be able to have kids when and as they want. And I think that can only be a good thing. Okay, that sounds very futuristic, Sam. Marie, your reasons to be cheerful. 
other than being able to go back to France. Hey, uh, I mean, you say that now. I live in London. You know, there's Omicron. <laughs> I feel like you know, is, I would only yeah. celebrate once I'm physically there. Well, I think, you know, on a personal note, mine is probably just like I've already had COVID twice now. So realistically, this is it. I'm probably not going to catch COVID again. Um, and isn't that nice? Uh, but no, I mean, I, I did struggle a bit with that. So I think uh, I've gone for a slightly tongue-in-cheek one, which is that um, I reckon there'll be a Tory leadership contest, uh, contest next year. And I just really enjoy leadership contests. So, you know, th- th- that'll be fun. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, it's an incredibly bleak concept, but I genuinely stared at your email for quite a long time thinking, why am I cheerful? And then as I'm, I'm not I'm not cheerful at all, really. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that and uh, and yeah, I mean you know, and hopefully as well, you know, which is the most obvious possible answer. But realistically, things you know, things are still getting better. Things we're in a better position now with the pandemic than we were this time last year. Um, and hopefully, you know, it, it'll be the same next year. We'll be in an even better position. So hopefully, you know, we will think of the pandemic mostly as a 2020, 2021 um, thing. So yeah, I, yeah, there you go. That that was very bleak. I apologise. <laughs> when I in my previous life as. Um... As a lobby journalist, when Jeremy Corbyn became Labour leader, you know, part of my heart sunk because this ridiculous man was Labour leader. But on the other hand, as someone said, his election was like a make work scheme for journalists. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, it was it was kind of fun in its own bizarre, chaotic way. So, yeah, good for trade. If, if there is a leadership election, then it would definitely be uh, be good for political journalists trade. Right. Alice. Reasons to be cheerful. Well, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to be a Denby Downer as well here. Um, Last year, I said my reason to be cheerful was that 2021 couldn't possibly be worse than 2020. And boy, was I wrong. So in order to not have egg on my face again this time, I'm going to say it just feels like a year when hope has turned to despair. And I don't really have anything good to say. Sorry. Okay. Well, you could say 2022 can't be any worse than 2021. Just keep on doing this. We'll be here in 2026 going, it can't be any worse. I promise you. Please. Right, Madeline, please inject some uh, levity into proceedings because I think we're all going to cry. After. I'm, I'm trying. The thing is, I would have said, if you'd asked me even if a couple of weeks ago, I would have made the point that, that Marie and Alice made or semi-made that, um, you know, life seems to be heading back to normal. But there's just that terrifying fear that at any moment a new variant can come along that changes all of our calculations and prompts a rethink and requires new restrictions even after the population has been vaccinated. So I have do have this general kind of doom and gloom about the prospect of, proper normal life you know rather than a version a moderated version of it coming back um so really i thought about it a lot um i googled good things that happen in 2022 and um it was pretty slim pickings um the best i could come up with was um i've got tickets to the libertines and there might be a new season of succession by the end of the year i was a big libertines fan as well so i might i might try and snap those up uh as well, I just hope Pete's sorted out um, his uh, massive weight gain by then, based on the last time I saw a photo of him. Um, on that jolly festive note, thank you all so much. It's been a, a great hour or so. It's really, really flown past. A pretty extraordinary 2021. I hope you all have a great Christmas wherever you spend it. I hope you beat the virus to go and see your families. And above all, I hope that 2022 is a bit less crap than 2021. Thanks a lot. Well, it only remains for me to thank you, our loyal listeners. We've had a great time making the podcast this year with some wonderful guests, and we'll be rounding up our favourite episodes on the site over the Christmas break. 
We've also got big plans for the new year and some cracking guests lined up, so please do carry on streaming, sharing and spreading the good news about the CapEx podcast. We wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a happy 2022. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.